sure everybody's wondering, where's Bill going? <laughs> Good morning. My name is Rick Kahn. I'm one of the communicators here at Charter Oak Church. Good uh, morning. <laughs> Love worshiping with you guys. Just a great experience. Uh, it's a great set this morning. Pumped, excited. Uh, so let's talk. Um, I want to start today with a really important question. Whose job was it to check the chairs this week? I mean, did somebody bring a toolbox and they turned every chair over to make sure all the screws were in place and all the bolts were fastened tightly? I mean, how confident exactly are you that the chair you're sitting on is going to hold you up without breaking? Now, of course, that question's a little bit ridiculous. Nobody at this campus is assigned to be chief chair inspector each week. But if you're looking for a volunteer opportunity... Yeah. Honestly, I doubt that anyone here even thought about the stability of their chair before I brought it up. But ask yourself, how did you get that confidence before you even sat down? When you came in, did you turn it over and make sure that all the fittings were tight? No, of course you didn't. I watched. Nobody did. Uh, so why didn't you do any of that? Well, let me suggest that there are two reasons. First of all, I'd suggest that probably the first time you ever sat on a chair, and I bet that none of us actually remember that, but I bet the first time you sat on a chair, someone that you trusted told you that it was okay or they demonstrated to you that it was safe. But now, it's more likely that you trust chairs because you have confidence based on your accumulated prior experience in sitting in chairs. So at this point, I'm guessing a few of you are wondering, should I check my chair? <laughs> Did Rick do something to sabotage one of these chairs? And most importantly, why does this guy have so many philosophical questions about chairs? Um, but I wanted to point out that how we feel about and interact with chairs is an example of an important spiritual concept. You see, when we believe that something will do what it claims to do, and we act in a way that shows that we actually do believe it, that's called faith. So when you sat down this morning, you had faith that your chair was going to hold you. And in many ways, that's exactly how our relationship with God and faith in Jesus and confidence with him and his promises works. When we first examine the gospel and the claims of the Bible, there's a certain level of our own reasoning. We listen to the testimony of others uh, and we bring all that to the table. But then there's a confidence that accumulates once you put your faith in Jesus. There's a deepening sense of that certainty that the gospel is true and that our relationship with God is real as we continue to experience his presence and we see him at work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. So as we continue to study 1 John, we're going to see in today's passage that John's desire in writing to believers was that they could have confidence in Jesus, that they and we could believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. Now, you need to keep in mind, John was writing to a group of Christians at a church in a place called Ephesus who were watching some of their fellow church members professing followers of Jesus abandon their faith. They were completely rejecting the historical teaching about Jesus. And the remaining faithful believers, they were shaken and they were anxious and they were unsettled and they were tempted to doubt whether or not they had the real thing. So John's goal for them and God's goal for us in this letter, throughout this letter, is that we would have a renewed sense of confidence 
in Jesus and who he said he was and what he said he would do. So if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been studying through the book of First John. And some of the passages that we've studied in First John have been pretty, pretty heavy, pretty intense. And we've needed to dissect them and really process them and see what the passage was saying about how to apply to our lives today. And fair warning, the section that we're going to read today, some scholars have called it the most difficult verses in the Bible. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the assignment. <laughs> so I'm going to take my time and I'm going to try to be clear in explaining what John is writing here and what it means for us today. So let's start with just reading the passage, 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So throughout 1 John, John has been compelling his readers to continue to believe in Jesus. And as the letter is now nearing its completion, John repeats that theme one more time. And John uses the analogy of a trial. So in these verses, John brings witnesses. He makes a closing statement. He pronounces a verdict as well as a sentence. Essentially, John says, let's see if a trial could convince Jesus of being the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And then he asked, what are you going to do with that information? What's, what's the verdict for you? What's the sentence? So what is the testimony about Jesus? 1 John 5, 6 says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Remember, the nature of Jesus has been under attack in the church that John has been writing to. So we're going to see through these verses that John is bringing the testimony of witnesses to affirm the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a basic uh, element of a court case, evidence brought through testimony of witnesses. And throughout Scripture and the Jewish court tradition, you needed to have the testimony of two or three witnesses in order to convict someone. So quick aside, if you haven't been with us for our study of 1 John, or I'm sorry, if you been with us, you'll know that we're using this study as an opportunity to model a method of studying the Bible by identifying key words and phrases and underlying and highlighting and, and making notes. So we're going to be doing that again today. So in these verses, the word water is used three times and blood is used twice. And we've learned that repeated words are typically important. So I want you to underline all three times it says water and both times that it says blood. And I want you to circle the word testifies because we have been already seen that testifying and testimony is one of the major themes of this section of scripture. So let me read that again. First John five, six. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. 
So if that verse wasn't entirely clear to you or was outright confusing, you are in good company. There's a good deal of variation among biblical scholars regarding what the symbolism in these verses means. So we're going to take some time and break it down piece by piece and talk about the potential interpretations and then work through why most people who study this passage have come to one particular conclusion about the meaning of these verses. So let's start with the first part of the verse. First John 5, 6a says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, there are a few interpretations of what water and blood mean in this context. Some scholars think that this refers to the water and blood that came from Jesus's side when he was pierced in the cross. And that is a real thing. And that was proof that Jesus was really dead and hadn't merely passed out while on the cross, which is something that people who try to deny the resurrection will sometimes claim. Uh, but the water and blood at this point isn't really a symbol of Jesus's messiahship, which is what John is trying to prove in this passage. A second interpretation is that it could be referring to Jesus's birth and death. Again, out of context, this isn't an unreasonable interpretation. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he says in John 3, 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born by water and the spirit. And in that context, born of water is a reference to physical birth. And blood is commonly used in the Bible as a symbol for Jesus' death. At the Last Supper, Jesus called the contents of the cup the blood of the covenant. So if we interpret water and blood to mean birth and death, then John's point would be restated as Jesus came to earth, he was born like any other man, and he died. Now, there were some people in John's time, there was a group called the Gnostics, who were denying that Jesus had physically come to earth as a man. And that would have been an effective counterargument against them, but Jesus' earthly life also isn't what John is trying to prove here. Now, others think that water and blood refer to every believer's baptism and communion. These are two things, baptism and communion, that all believers have been commanded to do. And both are associated with having believed. People who interpret the verse this way, this way would say that by participating in these activities, the believers are expressing outwardly what they continue to believe inwardly. And again, while that's a true concept, it doesn't fully convey what John's trying to prove here. So most biblical scholars believe, and I agree, that the words water and blood in this passage actually refer to Jesus' baptism and his death. Remember, John um, has brought Jesus' messiahship to trial. And John is bringing witness testimony to prove the case. So here, water is referring to the baptism of Jesus. Because baptism was one of the ways that God authenticated the identity of Jesus. Now, if you don't know the story, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, who preached a baptism of repentance. It's different from the baptism that we have today in the church. It was a baptism of repentance. That meant John the Baptist preached that people needed to turn from their sin and ask God for cleansing and forgiveness. And the baptism at that time was an external sign of an inward reality of a changed life. So in his baptism, Jesus was identified with the idea that we needed repentance. But it's important to remember that Jesus himself did not need repentance. He lived a sinless, perfect life. But in his baptism, Jesus was identifying with not only the message of John, but also with us, with sinners in need of salvation. And the Bible says that when Jesus came out of the baptism water, in Mark 1.11, it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
So Jesus' baptism acts as an authentication of his messianic role. He's the savior of the world. He's the son of God. Now back to our verses in 1 John. 1 John 5, 6a. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. So we've already said water is a reference to the testimony of Jesus' baptism. The word blood then refers to the testimony of his death. When Jesus died, there were a series of miraculous events that testified to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. There was a supernatural darkness that covered the land that we can read in Matthew 27, 45. The curtain of the temple, this thick curtain that nobody could have ever ripped by hand, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, was torn. That's in Matthew 27:51a. There was an earthquake, and it said rocks split in Matthew 27:51b. And tombs were opened, and the dead were resurrected in Matthew 2752. And these miracles at the time of the death of Jesus testify that he really was and really is the Son of God. And just in case you think we're reading into this in hindsight, Matthew 2754 records this. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So let me take a quick aside note here because there's something that you and I need to get right about Jesus' death. And it's a problem that we can be find easily in the church today. The blood, Jesus' death is a dividing line. Many people love Jesus the teacher. A lot of people love Jesus the miracle worker. They love Jesus the example. But they don't love Jesus the crucified. Because if Jesus had to die for our sins, it means something about the seriousness of sin and how sin separates us from God in a way that we could never overcome on our own. In short, people don't like to be told that they're sinners in need of a Savior. But that's what Jesus the crucified means. So back to our passage. John has presented the testimony of Jesus' baptism and then the testimony of Jesus' death as evidence that he is the Son of God. And third, John talks about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In John 5, 6b, it says, and, the spirit who testify, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. At many places in time during Jesus' earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' life and gave testimony to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. But more than that, believers have that same constant testimony about Jesus by the Holy Spirit living within us. I want you to hear that. If you're a believer, you have that same constant testimony about Jesus from the Holy Spirit living within you. In John 14, 26, Jesus says when he was explaining the Holy Spirit to his disciples, the advocates, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. And John even takes a moment to point out how reliable this witness is. John says we can believe the Spirit's testimony because the Spirit is the truth. So we've seen in this trial of whether Jesus is the Son of God, whose death could allow for the forgiveness of sins, that John has presented the testimony of three witnesses. Jesus' baptism, symbolized by the water. Jesus' death, symbolized by the blood. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So keeping with the trial analogy, John then goes into his closing argument. 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, 
and the three are in agreement. So in our Bible study together, we're going to do a few things. First, we're going to underline water and blood, and we're going to circle testify, just like we did in verse 6, since these are major themes in these verses. And there's something special to see about the word testify in this verse. Testify is in the present tense. John isn't saying that these things testified in the past. He's pointing out that they're currently and continuing to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And in this verse, I also want you to underline an important word, agreement. Agreement is important because John's building a legal case here. Remember, in Jewish law, based on the commands God gave them in the Old Testament, someone could only be convicted of a crime if two or three witnesses testified, and those three, two or three witnesses' testimony were in agreement. It wasn't enough to have witness one say you did one thing, and witness two accuse you of something else, and witness three testify that you did even a third thing. To be convic convicted, witnesses' statements needed to agree. So when describing Jesus' trial before the crucifixion in Mark 14, 56 to 57, it points out the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against them, but their statements did not agree. But in the testimony of the trial that John is presenting, all three witnesses are in agreement. They are unified and they speak the same truth. 1 John 5, 9 continues, We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his son. So like in the other verses, I want you to circle testimony. It's three times in this verse. And in this verse, I want you to underline greater. It's an important word here because greater means that God's testimony has more authority than human testimony. And John's actually pointing out the irony that we're willing to accept the testimony of people in court, but many people reject God's testimony about Jesus. So quick summary, John's presented his witnesses. Now he's making his closing statement. And now he's calling for a verdict. First John 5 to 10 uh, continues, whoever believes in the son of God accepts his testimony. So in our Bible study, like in the previous verses, I want you to circle testimony. And I want you to underline two important words, believes and accepts. This verse says that if you accept the testimony that Jesus has, uh, that, excuse me, that John has presented, that you can believe with certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. I stumbled on that, so let me say it again. It's important. This verse says that if you accept the testimony that John has presented, then you can believe with certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to notice this isn't a blind leap of faith. God isn't asking for us to close our eyes and hope. God has given us evidence so that we can believe. The word believes here is not a once and done thing. It's not simply a decision you've made in the past. I've met too many people who say, I'm a Christian. I believe. I prayed a prayer sometime in the past, maybe when I was a kid. But they don't live out their faith. The word here believes. It represents a continual, ongoing, growing belief in Jesus. This is someone with an active, personal faith in Jesus. So jumping ahead briefly, we're going to look at the trial sentence. Uh, if someone comes to the conviction that Jesus is God's son. In the next verses, John 5, 11 to 12, it says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. So just like in prior verses, you're going to circle testimony 
And in this verse, I want you to underline the words has given. The phrase has given means a completed action in the past that is still true in the present. It's something that God has done that is continually true about us even now. Eternal life is a gift from God given by grace and not merited by any good works that we may try to do to gain God's favor. To put an exclamation point on his thought, John then declares, whoever has the Son has life. Jesus has given us both eternal life and a new life through him as we live out our salvation. Believers have life both now and into eternity. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. But there's another side to the coin. Going back to the second half of verse 10, 1 John 5.10b says, Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. So just like in the prior verses, I want you to circle testimony and then underline the phrase not believe. It's there twice. And underline the word liar. The world likes to think that there are lots of acceptable opinions about Jesus. But John says there are two opinions. Either you believe or you don't believe. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. So what do these verses say about the person who rejects Jesus? Again, repeating 1 John 5, 10b, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. John's black and white here. He says directly that if you do not believe that Jesus is the son of God who came, away to take the sins, came to take away the sins of the world, then you are declaring that God's testimony is unreliable. You're saying he's an unreliable witness. Another way to put that is you're saying that God's a liar, that he's lying under oath. So you might say, I don't hate Jesus, or I'm okay with Jesus, or I think Jesus was a great teacher. But really, it's not simple, as simple as saying, okay, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. Understand this. John is saying that if after hearing God's testimony, you reject Jesus and say he isn't the Messiah, God's son, you're calling God a liar. And that's what John says is on the line. John says there is only one outcome for the person who doesn't believe. In verse, uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 12b, it says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Be clear about this. Anyone who rejects Jesus as God's Son doesn't have life, or for eternity. So where are you? Have you been sitting on the fence saying, I'm not sure about this Jesus? John says that God has given irrefutable testimony that Jesus is God's son, the Messiah who lived a perfect life, who was murdered on a cross to take the punishment for your sins and my sins, who rose from the dead proving who he said he was. More than that, God says that if you hear God's testimony and still reject Jesus as his son, you're calling God a liar. And if that's you, there's no better time than now to get off the fence and follow Jesus. If that's something you want, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Bill will talk to you. You talk to anybody on this stage, a lot of people around here, we'd love to just catch up with you after the service and talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you're in a second category. Maybe you've been saying that you believe that Jesus is God's son, but your actions just say the opposite. Jesus said that if you love him, you'll obey his commandments. 
I want you to hear this next thing because it's important. If your faith isn't borne out in your actions, then there is something very, very wrong. So if you've been living a life that doesn't track with what you say you believe about Jesus, then your actions are calling God a liar. And you need to take a deep look at yourself and see if you really believe what you say you believe. And if you genuinely do believe, then let your love for Jesus spur you on to live out your faith. Or maybe you're in a third category. Maybe you're a Jesus follower and you're actively trying every day to follow Jesus. And if that's you and you're actively searching for, excuse me, if that's you, are you actively searching for opportunities to share the gospel with your unsafe friends and neighbors? Jesus says, whoever has Jesus has life, both now and for eternity. But whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. We have been given an incredible gift from God and we need to share the good news of Jesus with the people that come into our lives. Will you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you awestruck by who you are, by your grace and your patience and your love. When we see your glory and righteousness and holiness, we can't help but see the dark contrast of sin in our lives. And we confess that sin to you. Father, forgive us for when we behave disobediently. And we don't share your love with the people that you have brought into our lives. Forgive us for all the times that by our words or our actions we've called you a liar. Forgive us for hoarding and not sharing the wonderful gift of your salvation. And Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy you've provided through the death of your son, Jesus. We also thank you that you don't require a blind leap of faith, but that you provide evidence so that we can believe with confidence that Jesus is your son, the Messiah, who came to save the world. Help us, Lord, to be a people committed to sharing your love and sharing the good news that Jesus is who he said he was. And that through him his, and his death, you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you. Help us to live lives consistent with what we claim to believe through the power of your Holy Spirit living in us and constantly testifying to the truth about Jesus. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.